So there's a famous Sukkis anecdote, which I have heard told in many different forms and permutations as a joke. And what I want to tell you is that it's not a joke. It's a real story. And I know someone who was there. He was not the lawyer, but he was a lawyer and he was in the courtroom when this happened. And that lawyer is my grandfather, Oliver Shalom who actually his first case was he passed the bar in 1929 when he was only 20 years old and the state of Illinois had a rule he had to be 21 to practice law. So his first case was he sued the state of Illinois to allow them to allow to get them to allow him to practice law um, at the age of 20. So he practiced law in the, in the starting from 1929 and a lot of his cases were during the Great Depression in Chicago, and one of the cases that occurred one time, he said it was Ed of Sukkis, and he was in the courtroom, and there was another case before him. There was a complaint from a landlord to a tenant. The landlord said that the tenant had put up an obstruction, a fire hazard. What was it? The tenant built a sukkah on the fire escape. So, uh, the judge, who was a Jewish judge, his name was Fisher. This is what my grandfather told me. The judges, and he told me the judge's name and everything. He hears the case and he see, he understands this guy has a, a sukkah on the fire escape. Technically, he's not allowed to have it there. It's Ed of Yomtiv. So uh, the judge says, "I'm siding with the plaintiff, right, with the with the landlord, and I'm ordering you, the tenant, the defendant." to remove the obstruction, I'm giving you 10 days to comply. Okay, so people tell that as a joke, as something cute. It's not a, it is cute, but it's not a joke. It's a real story that happened. I'm giving you 10 days to comply. Out of Yomtif, right? Basically, you're saying enjoy, enjoy your Yomtif and then uh, Isru Chag, the day after Isru Chag even, because, right, you have Shemini Yatseris is the eighth day, and Simchas is the ninth day. So on the 10th day, meaning, I guess that would be Isru Chag, Go ahead and uh, take your take your sukkah down. Okay, so I want to share with you an idea from something called the Rishimais. The Labavitcher Rebbe wrote notes, personal scholarly notes in a journal or a series of journals. And they were discovered after Gimel Tamas, after the Rebbe's passing. And these journals go back to the Rebbe's youth. Some of them include notes for fabrengens, for gatherings. This particular gathering was Sukkis Simchas Beis HaShoeva, Tov Shin Beis. Okay, that's exactly 80 years ago. And for those who know a little bit the history, you know that the Rebbe came to America on Chof Ches Sivan, the 28th day of the month of Sivan, that's in the summer of 1941, Tov Shin Aleph. So we're talking about a few months later, the Rebbe's first Tishrei, the Rebbe's first high holiday season and first Sukkis in America. And the Rebbe wrote notes for a Fabrengen that he would deliver Simchas Pesach Shueva there in uh, in America, in Brooklyn. 
one of the points that's discussed is based on a medrash from Breshis Rabba, which retells the story of Avram Avinu on the third day of his bris. This is a story which we read about in Parshas Vayero. Three days after his bris mila, Avram Avinu is already uh, desperate for guests, for visitors, and he's sitting outside of his tent, and he's looking for passers-by, and Hashem finally has pity on him and sends him guests. No ordinary guests, they're angels. Avram doesn't know that they're angels, but uh, he goes to gather them, and he offers the, he offers them hospitality. So the Medrash in Bereshit goes through the different aspects of Avram's gracious offers of hospitality and explains how each aspect of what he offers them, he tells them um, to stop and uh, take a rest under the tree. Take a rest under the tree is the one that we're going to uh, we're going to focus on the most here, or exclusively, really. Um, take some water, you know, have a drink, wash your feet. So he offers them all these different uh, ways of getting comfortable. And the Medrash goes through and explains how each aspect of Avram's offer for hospitality invoked a merit which later was paid to Avram's children, to us, to the Jewish people. So particularly, one of the things Avram tells the three travelers, the three angels who he thinks are travelers, he tells them, recline, rest, lean under the tree. Get some shade. You're in the middle of a desert, right? The sun's beating down. So recline under the tree. So the Medrash says that in repayment to Avram, for telling his guests, rest, recline, lean back under the shade of the tree, Avram's descendants, the Jewish people, were given the mitzvah of sukkah, where we take shelter under the shade of the sukkah. That was the measure-for-measure recompense, the payment for Avram's hospitality, or that aspect of Avram's hospitality. Okay. So the Rebbe asks a question, and it's a, it's a really obvious question if you're taking these Midrashim seriously. And that is, we understand that Avram's sukkah is not a real sukkah. Obviously, it's, it's before Matan Torah, it's before the revelation at Sinai. So we understand that he is observing sukkahs in a spiritual way or a symbolic way. Okay, fine. Still, it seems strange that Avraham's proto-sukkah, if we could call it that, is precisely the kind of shade that is explicitly forbidden and invalid as a sukkah in its form as a mitzvah given to Avraham's children. The Mishnah tells us, Mishnah and sukkah, if somebody makes his sukkah under a tree, meaning even if the, the sukkah itself is perfectly kosher, but he built it under a tree, it's like he made it 
Babayis in the house, and it's invalid, puzzle, invalid. So how much more so when the when the sukkah itself is a tree, it's mechuber lakarka, it's something that's growing out of the ground, attached to the ground. So this is an absolutely invalid sukkah. So we're we're trying to understand. I understand that Avram's sukkah is not a real sukkah. It's not the mitzvah proper. The mitzvahs weren't given until Sinai, seven generations after Avram. And it's it's more of like a, a symbolic connection that this recline under the shade of the tree, sit under the tra- shade of the tree is sort of like the same motif as we sit under the shade of the sukkah. Still, Avram's sukkah is supposed to foreshadow no, no pun intended, to foreshadow <laughs> the shade that Avram's sukkah was offering is supposed to foreshadow the shade that the sukkah provides for his children who are doing a mitzvah of, of sitting in the sukkah, in the shade of the sukkah. So why is the, the uh, proto-sukkah, or the uh, paradigmatic sukkah, the original sukkah, something that if it were to be used today, would be absolutely, unquestionably invalid. Okay. So, to understand this, we need to understand, really, the very nature of Judaism as a, as a practice as a set of, of rituals, as a code, as rules, laws that we live according to and that we follow, a way of life. And to ask ourselves, what is the nature of our connection to these rituals and these acts and these laws? What, why do we keep them? Why is it important for us to uphold? And there are different perspectives, there are different ways of looking at it. I'll tell you that I cannot um, pretend to know that this is what the Rebbe was addressing in 1941, or at that point, uh, yeah, it was, it was Tufshin Base. it was still the last few months of 1941. So I don't know this is what the Rebbe was addressing. I don't know if this was cultural commentary or social criticism, but certainly at that time in the 40s in America, there were definitely traditionalists, meaning people who were not trying to go away from observance. Maybe they're trying to modify or um, in some ways dilute observance, but they were not throwing away observance. They considered themselves traditionalists. They were explicitly attempting to conserve Jewish tradition. But the motive was decidedly cultural, meaning why are we trying to preserve our culture or why are we trying to preserve Judaism? Because it's our culture. You know, like the Romans made great architecture, right? The Romans aren't around anymore, but their buildings are, right? They're famous for it. The, the Greeks made great plays. They wrote great dramas, right? Different civilizations excel in different things. So the Jewish people, the Hebrews 
Our civilization, our culture, we excelled in creating moral codes and laws and religion, right? Think about how much of the world has a religion based on Judaism. There's not that many Jews, but if you look at all the Abrahamic faiths, Lahavdil, the religions that are spin-offs of Judaism, look how popular the Jews are at introducing the idea of monotheism and, and uh, the, 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 the idea of the perfectibility of the world, the idea of a, of a messianic era. All these ideas are from, from Judaism, uh, protecting the weak, uh, curbing the, 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 the strength of, of, of those in power, um, that might does not make right. All these ideas are, are Jewish contributions to the world. And so maybe you would say, if I come from a people whose ancestors were, were good at these types of things, so then it's sort of like, that's our heritage, that's our culture. So we preserve it because it's culturally important. This is what our fathers did, and what their fathers did, and what their fathers did, and that's what makes it valuable. That's what gives it worth. That's certainly an approach. Here's what I'm going to tell you. That is not why we sit in a sukkah or bench lulav and esrug or keep Shabbos or put on tefillin or, for that matter, the social justice mitzvahs like giving tzedakah. That's not why we do any of this. It's not because we have a culture that we're trying to preserve. It's not why we do it. It's not because one person did something that another person imitated. It is because we stood at Sinai and God spoke to us and revealed to us his will and told us all types of things. Some intuitive things like honor your mother and father and other things we would never figure out on our own, like don't take wool and linen and weave them into a single fabric, right? We keep mitzvahs because it comes from Hashem, because there was a revelation at Sinai. So there's a, a Mishnah in Chulin. Chulin is a tractate that discusses, it's interesting, by the way, if you're learning three chapters of Rambam right now, we're learning Hilchas Shechita, which is all from the tractate of Chulin. Chulin talks about, uh, Chulin literally means mundane, as opposed to uh, animal sacrifices, which animal sacrifices are, are sacred, are uh, consecrated meat. But then there's mundane meat, you know, regular meat that you just eat, uh, not as a sacrifice. I shouldn't say, God forbid, that you just eat, because if you eat meat, you're supposed to do it mindfully and do it uh, respectfully to the life of the animal. So I don't, I don't mean that you just eat, God forbid, but I mean as opposed to sacred meat, which is which is a temple sacrifice, which we don't have right now because uh, the temple needs to be rebuilt by Mashiach. But at any rate, Hulin is talking about non-consecrated meat, regular meat, uh, as opposed to sacred. And uh, one of the discussions there is the prohibition of the Gid HaNosheh. The Gid HaNosheh is the sciatic nerve. And, uh, you know, there's a story in Parshas Vayishlach where Yankov Avino, Jacob, our father, is wrestling with the angel of, of Esau, of Esau Varosha, his brother, twin brother. And uh, he gets his sciatic nerve uh, wounded when his, the hip socket is displaced. And it says there that that's why we don't eat uh, Gidanosha. We don't eat the, uh, the sciatic nerve from an animal. 
So there's a machloikas, a little bit of a dispute in the in the Mishnah and Chulin between Rabbi Yehuda, the Tana Rabbi Yehuda, and the other Chachomim. It's interesting. Rabbi Yehuda says, what if you eat the sciatic nerve of a non-kosher animal? Is it two prohibitions? Like, I know you're not allowed to eat a non-kosher animal, but now you eat the sciatic nerve of the non-kosher animal. Is it, is it a double whammy? So the Chachamim say, no, it's, 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 it's one prohibition. You're not allowed to eat a non-kosher animal. It doesn't matter what part. You're not going to get an extra uh, punishment because of because what part you ate. And Rabbi Yehuda says, no, I think you do. And I'll tell you why. Because at the time when Jacob was given the prohibition of not eating the sciatic nerve, we had not yet been given the prohibition of not eating non-kosher animals. It was before Sinai, before the revelation at Sinai. So the whole concept of prohibiting certain animals would be anachronistic, would be out of place, out of time. If you're, if you're, if you're dating the origin of the prohibition of the sciatic nerve, the Gidonosha, to the times of Yankiv, to the times of Jacob, well then it predates the prohibition of eating non-kosher animals. So therefore, at that time, they could have, in theory, eaten a non-kosher animal, but they still would have been forbidden from eating the sciatic nerve of that same non-kosher animal. So the Chachamim say, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> yes, you're right, there's a story about the sciatic nerve that goes back to the times of Jacob, but that's not why we don't eat the sciatic nerve. We don't eat it because it's one of the 613 commandments that were given at Sinai. So, and that's the halacha, by the way. We follow the chachamim. It's not two prohibitions. It's not like Rabbi Yehuda's opinion. So, you know that the Rambam, Maimonides, wrote a pirish l'mishnayis. He wrote a commentary to the Mishnah. And on this Mishnah, the Rambam writes something very interesting. He says that he uses a term, I think, if I can find it here, he calls it an Iker Godel. Yeah, is this here? Yeah, he says, V'sim libcho alo Iker HaGodel. That's right. He says, pay attention, pay good attention to this great principle. Hanichlo b'mishnah hazois, which is to be found, which is included in this Mishnah. And he explains like this, that this Mishnah is not just talking about the sciatic nerve. It's talking about a general principle, that the mitzvahs that we do, that which we distance ourselves from, or conversely, that which we do, either omission or commission, the negative prohibitions or the positive mitzvahs, that which we do today, we only do it because Hashem commanded it, through Moses, peace be upon him. Not because Hashem said it to prophets which predate the revelation at Sinai. And he goes through and he gives examples. He says, look, Noach, Noah, he didn't eat Aver Menachai, he didn't eat the limb of a living animal. Why? Because Hashem told him after the flood. Before the flood, they couldn't eat animals at all. Because Noah saved all the animals, so they were given permission to eat animals, but provided they didn't eat the limb of a living animal. So Noah had the prohibition against eating a limb, a limb of a living animal. We also have that prohibition. The Rambam says, though, that our prohibition is not the same as Noah's prohibition. The reason that we don't do it is not because Noah didn't do it. The reason we don't do it is because it was stated at Sinai not to do it. 
And the Ramam gives the next example. It says, the fact that Avram Avinu did a bris milah, that Abraham did a circumcision. That's not why we do the circumcision. We do the circumcision because it was one of the 613 commandments given at Sinai, not because it was something that our ancestor Abraham did. And the example that's in the Mishnah, the fact that Jacob was told not to eat the sciatic nerve, that's not why we don't eat the sciatic nerve. We don't eat the sciatic nerve because, again, it was one of the 613 commandments given at Sinai. So it's a very interesting concept here. Our Judaism is not a cultural heritage, or our obligation to preserve Judaism is not because it's a cultural heritage. It is a cultural heritage, but that's not the source of our obligation to uphold Judaism as individuals. It's not because our fathers did it, and their fathers did it, and their fathers did it, and their fathers did it. It's because God told us to do it. And this brings out something rather stunning. The Avais, the patriarchs and the matriarchs, were incredibly spiritually intuitive people. Why do I say they were incredibly spiritually intuitive? Because they, like the, the, the Mishnah and Kedushin says, that they kept the entire Torah before it was given. So you have to be pretty spiritually intuitive to be sensitive enough to be able to know what will bother Hashem before he tells you it bothers him, and what will please Hashem before he tells you it pleases him. So they were incredibly spiritually intuitive, spiritually sensitive, and, and, and because of that, they felt that there was something, like, comes the time of Sukkot, and Avram wanted to sit under a Sukkah. Came the time of Pesach, we know that Avram made matzahs. What, to commemorate an event? The Exodus, which wouldn't happen for another 400 years. Obviously, it was a different type of thing. When Avram baked matzahs on Pesach, it wasn't because he was commemorating anything, but he, he was tuned into the energy that was at that time, even before the historical event of the Exodus occurred at that time. Which is another discussion for another time, how Jewish time works. That it's not that we celebrate Pesach and freedom because that's when the Exodus happened, but rather the Exodus happened then because that's when there's an energy of freedom in the world. That's a, that's a discussion for another time. But the point is, the Aves, the Emois, our patriarchs, our matriarchs were incredibly spiritually sensitive. So they could feel what Hashem's will would be. And that's an incredible human achievement. We have to be blown away by such a human achievement. Human beings who are that sensitive, and we should be honored to be descended from such human beings who are that sensitive. And yet, it's still just a human achievement. It's human sensitivity. Yeah, it's profound human sensitivity, but it's still human sensitivity, and therefore it's finite. When we do a mitzvah, it's not because we're so profoundly sensitive. Who says we're sensitive at all? I don't know if we're sensitive at all. When we do a mitzvah, it's not because we're spiritually sensitive or intuitive. We do a mitzvah, it's because it says in Kitzvah Shulchan Aruch, we look up the, the abridged code of Jewish law, and it tells us how to go through our day, and how to go through the week, and how to go through the year, and we follow what it says. It's not because we're sensitive. And yet, when we do our mitzvahs, we're reaching a level that the patriarchs and the matriarchs could never reach. Precisely because their mitzvahs were an expression of human sensitivity. And because it's human, it's limited. It's finite like a human. When we do it, we're doing it because God commanded, and therefore it's infinite like God.
So if you think about it, the tree that's rooted to the ground, the tree that is attached to the earth is the exact fitting metaphor and living image, icon of Avram's entire spirituality. A tree is tall. It's very tall, right? Trees, tallest living things in the world are trees. You go to the Redwood National Forest, you find a sequoia there that's you know, taller than a lot of buildings. And yet, as tall as a tree is, a tree cannot be taller than itself. I'm going to say, what, what, are, you, what are you talking here? Talking poems, talking riddles. A tree cannot be taller than itself. However tall the top, top part of the tree is, that's as tall as the tree is. It can only reach as high as it can reach. That was like Avraham's spirituality. It can only reach as high as a person can reach. Okay, so he was the tallest tree. Avraham was the most spiritually sensitive person. But he could only be a spiritually sensitive person. So it's like that tree that is attached to the ground and can't outgrow itself, can't be taller than itself. Our mitzvahs are like a detached tree. Imagine you take a tree that's the tallest tree in the world, and then you detach it from the ground and you lift it up off the ground. And now it's taller than the tallest tree because it's not stuck to the ground. You know about the guy from Helm? told his friend, he said, you know, Chaim, if I would be Rothschild, I'd be richer than Rothschild. His friend said, yeah, how so? He says, because I'd also do a little tutoring on the side. <laughs> right? If I'd be Rothschild, I'd be richer than Rothschild, do some tutoring on the side. Okay. Imagine I'd have all Rothschild's money and plus, you know. Imagine the tallest tree in the world. It's only as tall as the tallest tree in the world. But now imagine that that tree is not connected to the ground and you can lift it up. You can put it on a space shuttle. I don't know. You could fly it to the moon. All in theory. This is a thought experiment. The point is, Avram's sukkah was the perfect sukkah to represent his entire spirituality, and our sukkah is the perfect sukkah to represent our entire spirituality. Avram's sukkah was a tree connected to the ground, and that was his, his whole spirituality. It was great, and it was tall, but it was tethered. It was anchored. It could not be taller than itself. It was human achievement, and it was limited. Our sukkah, what's our sukkah? The schach of our sukkah has to be stuff that grows from the ground, foliage, but it has to be cut off. So you take like a bush that's only this tall and you cut it off and then you lift it up higher than the higher than when it, what it was when it was growing. Which is very symbolic of our entire spirituality. That you take something however tall it is already and then you detach it from its human limitations and you lift it up and you make it even higher. Why? Because it's ultimately connected to Hashem's will. It's not an expression of human sensitivity, of human spiritual intuition. No, it's a manifestation of the infinite will of the Creator, and therefore it is much greater and can achieve much more than anything that, that a human desire, even the most sensitive human desire, could accomplish. I'll tell you a quick story. There was a, there was a chassid in Poland a chassid of the, uh, the Ger Rebbe, the Imre Emes. 
and uh, he was going on a trip to France. This is back in the 1920s. So he was going on a trip to France, a business trip. So he asked the Geir Rebbe, the Imre Emes, for a bracha. The Rebbe gave him a bracha, and he went to France. Oh, this is the key of the story. So the Imre Emes tells him, when you're in Paris, though, pick up a certain brand of cigars for me, a certain fancy, rare brand of cigars, the only sell in Paris. Buy it there for me and bring it back. So the Chassid goes on the business trip to Paris, and he does well, and uh, he makes a lot of money. And as he's coming back from the trip, he's on the train, and he says, oh, I forgot the cigars. I didn't buy the cigars in Paris. So he gets off the train to the next stop. He's in Belgium already. So in Belgium, he buys cigars that are even nicer than the ones they have in Paris, and he brings those back to Poland. So he goes straight to the Imre Emes. The Imre Emes asks him, did you get my cigars for me? He says, you know, Rebbe, I got better cigars than the one that Rebbe asked for. I got the ones, not the Paris cigars. I got the Belgian cigars. And the Imre Emes said, Oy vey. you think that I wanted cigars? I wanted that you should be in Paris on a business deal and think that you have a Rebbe back in Poland who's thinking of you. That's why I told you to get the cigars in Paris. When you ask somebody to do you a favor, run an errand for me. Can you get this for me? Can you help me out? It creates a relationship. It creates a connection. It's not just the item itself. It's the fact that you're on a mission. You've been sent on a mission by the one who asked you to do that particular task. So when we sit in a sukkah or light Shabbos candles or put on fill-in or give tzedakah or any mitzvah that we do, it's not just the action itself that has value. It's that someone with a capital S, someone, he, Hashem, asked us to do that thing. And therefore, the value of that action is far greater than the action itself. This is what we have to remember, that the value of our mitzvahs, of our way of life as Jews, the rituals that we keep and even the social justice mitzvahs that we would do just out of decency. But the value is not just the value of the act itself. Yes, there is a certain value that it has, that it refines a person, that it makes the world a better place. That's all true. But there's more than that. The value of these actions is that they were divinely commanded, and therefore they have infinite power which far outreaches human power. And this is the whole symbol of our sukkah compared to Avram's sukkah. We were given the ability to do physical actions which reach infinitely, infinitely to the greatest heights of, of, of spiritual accomplishment. And it's not limited by our sensitivity. It's not limited by what we appreciate about it. Sometimes, to the contrary, the less we appreciate, the less we know what's going on, the better, you know, the less we get in the way. That's what we have to remember.
You are given an infinite reach. Like a tree that's as tall as the tree, and then some, because it's not stuck with its roots in the ground. You know, Alex Haley wrote a book back in the 70s called Roots, and it was a miniseries on TV. It was all about an African-American scholar himself, it was autobiographical, looking for his tradition, his heritage. And he, he went and he researched. It was very difficult, obviously, because of the way that African-Americans were brought to this country. It was under very inhuman uh, conditions where they were specifically separated from their histories and from their traditions and their, their culture. And Alex Haley did a, did a whole uh, search, genetics and, and history and documents, trying to find his roots. And there's something, there's something very uh, universal to that, about wanting to know your roots. And there's something tempting about viewing Judaism from, from that lens, as, as these are our cultural roots, and this is why it has value. This is why we have to keep it up. This is why we can't just let it go. And maybe that has a certain emotional appeal. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't disparage it, but I would say... If you'll let me talk to you for more than five minutes, <laughs> I would want to get past the emotional appeal of just connecting to Judaism because they are, they are our roots, and to say to the contrary, actually, you want to know something? Judaism is the opposite of roots. It's rootless, which, by the way, was one of the charges against the Jewish people at all times, right? The rootless cosmopolitans. They don't have a land. Of course, you know, we're thrown out of our land, but they don't have a land. They're not attached to the ground, and they're, they're never farmers, and they just go from one city to another, and they hold multiple passports when they drift around, right? That was always one of the charges against the Jews. But let, let's speak about being rootless from the metaphysical perspective. There are roots, meaning cultural roots, nationalistic roots, genetic roots, and all those things are part of the human experience. And then there's this metaphysical condition of the Jewish people, which transcends roots. And to the contrary, is like, imagine this tree, which is as tall as however the world's tallest tree is, and then it can sort of take its roots out of the ground and be higher, be higher than itself. If I were Rothschild, I'd be richer than Rothschild. <laughs> if I'd be the tallest tree, I could release my roots from the ground and jump out of the ground. Imagine a big sequoia in the redwood forest jumping up in the air and being taller than itself, right? That's Judaism. That's our mitzvahs. That however spiritually sensitive you are. Okay, so it's that. And then plus infinity. <laughs> plus the infinity that comes from the fact that it's not my idea. I didn't come up with this. And it's not my father's idea. And it's not my father's father's idea. And it's not even Avramavinu's idea. It's Hashem's will. And like Hashem, it's infinite. Okay, thanks for joining me, and uh, have a very happy rest of your sukkahs.